Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your gift of mercy and the grace that we have in Christ. We ask that your spirit would be with us to open our hearts and our minds to your word and to what you have revealed about yourself and the universe and everything uh, in, in your word. And so we pray that we would be um, captured and our hearts moved by what the Bible tells us concerning the relationship of the Trinity and the covenant that you have made with your Son and worked out in time and space for us and our benefit in Christ. We pray that uh, all of these things would move us to love each other more and to love uh, our lost neighbor, to um, have an urgency to share the gospel with them more accurately and with uh, greater fervor, we pray for the glory of Christ, and it's in His name. Amen. All right, um, we're 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 blessed by Carmen this morning. So let me. Okay, um, we are uh, continuing uh, our 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 short series. On, uh, on Calvinism, I thought it'd be good since we finished up the five points uh, last week. We talked about the, uh, some of the objections uh, that have been classical, uh, classical objections to the perseverance of the saints. This week, I, I wanted to kind of explore, it's not necessarily Calvinism proper, but it's okay. Are you separate again this week? Uh, I, I don't I don't see anyone other than <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Okay, so, so, um, so, I, I thought it would be good uh, to um, to talk about an element of doctrine that that I think has great impact on this whole discussion. I, I've said many times uh, as we've gone through the, our, our little series on on the five points of Calvinism that I'm a Calvinist because I'm a Trinitarian. Um, to me, that uh, uh, the understanding that, that the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in unity uh, over the outworking of salvation is such a, a massive point. Um, you know, God is one being, He's three in persons, and, and each person is distinct, right? Um, they are co equal, co eternal, yet the Father and the Son and the Spirit are in complete unity. And we've seen this in our discussions of the, the, the role of the Father in redemption, the role of the Son in redemption, the role of the Spirit in redemption. We've seen how that unity works itself out. Uh, we've seen, um, as one great theologian has put it, we've seen that the Father chooses them, uh, the Son gets bruised for them, the Spirit renews and, and bears fruit in them, as Shivlin has told us uh, many times. All right, so why? Why, where, where does the idea to redeem a people out of fallen humanity originate with God? Why, why did that even, why is that even a thing? I mean, he didn't do that with the angels, right? When the angels fell, you don't see Christ becoming in the form of an angel to die for angels, to redeem demons out of, you know, why, where did this come from? What's the point of this? Um, what's the origin of this great drama? Well, Scripture's largely silent on the why. Uh, that's part of the unconditional of unconditional election, right? We don't know 
why he did it. We, we have some hints. We have some things that he says that are, that are related to us that he might show the, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And that's, that certainly benefits us, and that's a display to, the, to creatures. But, but really, what was, the, what was going on um, beforehand? The, there are glimpses of something much bigger then it relates to, to us, that, that, that makes us the object of everything in redemption. There's, there, are, there are glimpses of something that's much more profound than just, not that it's merely God's kindness, but that, that there's more than God's kindness going on here. Um, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. I'm just going to read through this real quick, kind of get your thoughts. 24 says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, he being Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, who put all things in subjection under Christ? Christ doesn't put himself, you know, under subjection. He's putting all things under the subjection to Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So you get this this expression of the supremacy of God in all things. God the Father puts everything under, under uh, the subjection of Christ. Christ himself is under, under subjection to God the Father, that God may be all in all. All things are in subjection under him. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, what, what's the kingdom? What is the kingdom? What verse? Uh, just that whole what we just read, the First Corinthians fifteen. What, what what is he talking about? The kingdom. Look in uh, the verse twenty to twenty three. Somebody read twenty twenty three for me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay, so who would be the kingdom then? As who knows the pronoun? Oh, those those who belong to so the, the kingdom involves certainly there are other aspects of it involves a people right, and so you have this idea of a people being the kingdom that, that is given to Christ and Christ being subjected to the Father. Why is he presenting the church to God? What does the text say? What does it say? That God may be. What? Maybe all in all. All in all. That God may be all in all. That's the, this big thing that God has displayed as all in all. Here's the picture. Christ is reigning, and all things are put in subjection under His feet. Right? He's displayed as King of Kings. Um, how are we placed in subjection to the Son? What, what does it say? Well, just generally. How are we placed in subjection? We're born rebels, told depravity. We're born rebels. How are we placed in subjection to the Son? 
Welcome to the boys club. Come on in. How are we placed? How are we placed in subjection to the son? What what is involved there? How do we go from being rebels against the son to servants of the son? Through repentance and belief. By means of what? Grace. Hearing the gospel and responding in faith, right? Because of the grace of God. The gospel puts us in subjection to the Son, right? This is the way that, that, that we, we've seen it again. The, the choosing of the Father, the, the, the death of the Son, the renewing of the Spirit. These are the roles in salvation that we see undertaken by each person of the Trinity to do this putting subjection, all things, into Christ. Okay? Um, why? Why are they doing this? There's this all-in-all all idea. I don't know what that means, but it's all-in-all all idea. It's kind of this huge display. Look at, look at Titus 1, 1 and 2. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Well, that would be salvation, right? The elect are saved. And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, well, that would be sanctification. It's a growing in the, the redemption and the grace of God. In hope of eternal life, that would be what we call glorification. Yes? So we've got salvation, sanctification, glorification. This is Paul. He's doing it all for the sake of this. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So the question then is, promise to whom? When was the promise made? What does it say? Titus 1. Before the ages began. And that phrase means there and elsewhere in the original language, way back when eternity passed before anything was made. That's the idea. So it was a promise that God made to God. And if we want to get really, if we want to drill it down, the, the promise was from the Father to the Son, right? That, so Paul is recognizing that there's some promise that was made by the Father to the Son that involves this redemption, sanctification, glorification of a people. There are hints, there are hints of, of, of this. I call it the eternal covenant. Some people call it the, the covenant of redemption, this intertrinitarian agreement that was made in eternity past. Um, if you kind of compile the data of this, it reflects the distinctions of each person of the Trinity. What, what are we given in Scripture? Let's, let's take a look through this. If, the big passages on this, if you really want to just kind of study this later, the big passages I'll give you right now is Psalm 2, Psalm 89, uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, um, uh, also um, John 17, big, big passage on this kind of stuff. But let's look at first the Father's promise to elect a people. We've talked about election. We, did, we went through that point. But it's, where's this coming from? Why are we doing it? Why is he doing this? So the Father is the initiator of this covenant of redemption or this eternal covenant. He, he promises. And then the Son re-promises. And the Spirit is a witness to the promises of the Father and Son. He acts as a third witness. That's the overarching idea. Psalm 2.8 says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, 
and the ends of the earth your possession. So point one, the Father not only gives the elect to the Son, but He gives the Son to the elect in a special way, particularly as it relates to this eternal covenant or the covenant of redemption. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. So the Son, in this agreement, represents the Father to the people and the people to the Father. What does that make him? What do we call that? Big M word. Mediator. Mediator. He's a mediator between God and man due to this covenant. He, in fact, is the covenant with the people. I mean, he is the covenant. Point two, God requires payment for the sins of the elect. So the Father in the covenant represents the Trinity. He is he's a representative of head of that party, the Trinity. Um, and, the, and the Trinity is owed payment by sinners, right? We owed a debt we could not pay. And we owe it to God because of our sin. Um, and we see that it was decided that the Son would be the one to pay the debt, right? We've, we've talked about that. We talked about atonement, limited atonement, all of that. And in time, He paid it to the Father for His people. So the Gospel of John tells us, especially in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, that the Father gave the Son a work to do and sent Him to do it. So you see in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He sent, him, he sent Him to do a work. This is part of the covenant between the Godhead to redeem a people. And I, and I, and I put in some other sites for you after John 17, 3, uh, in, in 17, and also other places in, in the Gospel of John. So throughout that chapter, and really throughout John, this is a recurring theme that Jesus was sent by the Father to accomplish a mission. Also part of the covenant is that He prepared the Son for the mission. He prepared the Son for His mission. You see this in Hebrews 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's quoting Psalm 40 there. The author of Hebrews, Apollos, is quoting Psalm 40 there. So the Father promises to prepare him for his mission. The Father further promised to sustain the Son during his mission and protect him from Satan in Psalm 89 which is recognized as a Messianic psalm. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. David here, uh, most uh, scholars take it, uh, refers to a future son of David. So number three, lastly, the father covenanted with the son to give him a kingdom. Uh, Luke 22, 28-30 says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That word in the ESV that, that, that tr is tra the ESV translates as assigned uh, has uh, with it the idea of covenanted. It's directly related to the idea of a covenant. The father covenanted with the son to give him a kingdom. And this in included Christ redeeming the elect, the church, into this kingdom. Further, Hebrews 1-2 tells us that in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. I want to make a side note here because eventually I'm going to get to this idea of evangelism. Who, wh what's all things? What is all things? All things. All things. That doesn't just include the elect, but it also includes those who are non-elect, right? And snakes and the world and all, everything. all things are under the subjection of Christ. Those who are being saved and those who are not being saved. Now, we're going to talk about later whether or not a, a Calvinist can believe in the sincere offer of the gospel believing election. And I'm tipping my hand right here. Okay? Just make a mental note of that when we get back to it. Um, even those who are not being saved belong to the Son, though it's not as a special possession like it is for those whom he's, who's, he's saved, who he died for and who are being called. So, um, all right. So that's the Father's role, the choosing, the preparing the Son, the, the, the um, protecting Him while He is doing His mission. The Son's promise to redeem the elect. The Son, for His part, made promises to fulfill the conditions of the Father. He submitted to the Father's will. And John's Gospel frequently records Jesus saying that He didn't come to do His own will, he comes to do the will of the Father. This is, a, this is a, not a lesser in value subordinate thing. Okay, we want to make sure we're clear on that. Co-equal, co-eternal, God, Father, Son, Spirit, all, there's no lesser value of Godness there. But it's a role that Christ has taken on as an obedient son. And it's an eternal role. He's always been the obedient son. But in this way, he shows his obedience um, in, in promising to, do, to fulfill the conditions of the Father. He agreed, number one, to take on the nature of a man. And we saw that again in uh, Hebrews 10, 5-7. And we discussed that already. Um, number two, the Son came specifically to die for His people. That, that's why we, we talked about this before. He had to come as a God-man. You know, he just couldn't come down... As God, the incarnation was necessary to be the full um, payment for the sins of His people. Uh, Hebrews 10, 5 and 6 says that the Father did not desire offerings and sacrifices. He desired a perfect sacrifice, right? That, that's why there had to be the God-man. Only the God-man could, could make that. Christ was eternally God, but He needed to become the God-man in order to atone for the sins of His people. So Hebrews 7, 20 and 20, uh, through 22 says, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's a guarantor? Let's talk in terms of, of debt, right? You, you, you take a loan. Guarantees it. A, a guarantor is the, the, the person being loaned the money, or is it a third party? Third party. It's a third party. They don't owe anything. 
they voluntarily take on the debt of another, right? If this person can't pay it, I'll pay it. And that's exactly the language that's being used here. Christ is the guarantor. He doesn't know anything. He's righteous. He's holy, blameless, and undefiled. He doesn't, know, he doesn't owe a debt. We owe the debt. And so he takes on the role of guarantor. He signs on the line in his own blood. I will pay their debt if they can't do it. Well, guess what? You knew what you were getting into the minute you signed because they can't pay it. Right? So he is opting uh, and promising to take on that role as, as guarantor. Um, the cross work of Christ was not accidental. There's this idea out there, and I don't, I, I, I don't know where it came from. There's this idea out there that Christ came down to, to present himself as king to the Jews and, 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 and to set up a kingdom there in love, harmony, peace, and, and antiquity. And the Jews, if they reject him, well, that's where we get the church age. Because the Jews have rejected, there's this parenthesis, here's the church age. Hogwash. The death of Christ was not an accident. He covenanted to do it before the foundation of the world. And it, and it wasn't just God looking down the corridor of time saying, oh, well, we're probably going to have to have this happen. No, this was an agreement. This is, this is before we create the earth, this is what's going to happen. Let that sink in. How big is God? The crosswork of Christ was not accidental. It, it was not an event that led to the parenthetical age of the church, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians 1.4. Um, Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, there's a great exposition right there on how we can have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in the same sentence. But it shows that th this is a definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not an accident. The death of Christ was not an accident. All right, Acts 4, 27-28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's part of the covenant. It's part of the plan of God from the beginning. All right. The Spirit's witness and seal of the elect. The, the Holy Spirit often gets ignored by the smart folks. <laughs> And, and the not-so-smart folks, too. I mean, we, we, we tend to overlook the role of the Holy Spirit in the work of the redemption of the church. And in, this, and in this covenant in particular, the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant, however you want to call that, um, it, it may be due to the role that he is shown to have in Scripture as working kind of behind the scenes. He, he is making much of Jesus. That's his role. He will testify of me, Jesus says. But he's an equal member of the Trinity and also has a vital role in this covenant. So the agreement is between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit acts. Well, first of all, we, we know that the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, right? We, we, we've seen that in John 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
number two, the Spirit is frequently referred to as the witness. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, it says in Romans 8.16. Uh, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So He makes up, the Holy Spirit takes on the role of making up a third witness to this covenant. The Father is a witness. The Son is a witness. The Holy Spirit acts as a witness. And more than a witness, He acts as the seal of the covenant, right? Um, we know that the, number three, we know that the Spirit promised to do in the covenant of redemption what the Spirit promised to do from what He actually does in time, right? God doesn't do anything that He hasn't predetermined. He's not off the cuff here. We're not shooting from the hip as God. He, he makes a plan and He works a plan. Nothing is done by any member of the Trinity that is not predestined by God to be done. So what we see the Spirit doing is according to the plan of God, the covenant of God. Um, four, just as the Spirit witnessed to Christ in time, so He witnessed to the Son and the Father in the eternal covenant. He's been referred to uh, by Thomas uh, Brooks, uh, the great Puritan, as the great public notary of heaven. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but that's what he's doing. He's saying, you've agreed to this. I'm, I'm a witness to this. He witnessed, number five, he witnessed to the agreement regarding the atonement and in time had a part in it. Um, it says, uh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's Hebrews 9.14. He also sealed the eternal covenant with God's oath and in time seals the elect. Um, and you see this in Ephesians uh, 1.13. You also, uh, you know, uh, ha once you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and, and believed in him, were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, that, that whole idea of the Holy Spirit sealing not just Jews, but also all of the elect, the Gentiles too, there in, in verse 13 and 14. Number seven, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the covenant of redemption is being given effect among God's people. The Holy Spirit is drawing them. He gives them new birth. He grows them in grace to reflect Christ and all of those things that we discussed when we talked about irresistible grace. All of this is according to the eternal covenant. And if you're in Christ, you're caught up in it. This is why I love this doctrine. I, I mean, this is all great. This is huge. It's transcendent stuff happening in the throne room of God that we're not privy to except the, the glimpses that we get here. But here's why it's beautiful. The church is a love gift to make much of God, not much of us. What impact should that have on us? Um, it says, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Why is the church, why is the church important? It's not because we're so awesomely awesome. It's because He's awesomely awesome. If, you're in, if you are part of the body of Christ, you are caught up in a cosmic drama. And, and we don't get that. I don't, I'm talking about it. I don't get it. We're caught up in a cosmic drama. The love gift of the Father to the Son of a people. What, what, is, what is the role of, what is God, what has the Son done for eternity? He makes much, He glorifies the Father, right? He sings the praises of the Father. For eternity He's done this. The love gift of the Father to the Son is, Jesus, I love you. 
you honor me the way that you, you, that you glorify me, I want to give you a gift that also glorifies you. So he, he carves a people out of fallen humanity who are worth nothing in and of themselves to be the eternal hallelujah chorus to the Son, right? The eternal praise to the Son. To honor the Christ the way Christ has honored the Father. Do you see? We're not worth that. I'm not worth that. And yet, because He loves the Son, He carves out a people and bestows them honor to reflect Christ the way Christ reflects the Father. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Unbeliever, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. Can we say that? Imitate me as I imitate Christ? That's the role of the church. That's what we're supposed to do. Because the whole thing is not about the church, our salvation is really of secondary importance. It's a means to an end. It's a big deal. Thank God for it. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the honor of God, of God. The Father planned to glorify the Son because He loves Him. The Son, through His obedience, glorifies the Father because He loves Him. The Spirit glorifies the Son because He loves the Son and the Father. The Father and the Son glorify the Spirit in displaying His power and meekness because they love Him. This, this is one of the greatest things, apologetically. If you're looking to evangelize a Muslim, what does Allah know of love before creation of the world? The God of the Bible is community. And the God of the Bible, the Father, glorifies the Son. They're serving the other. Throughout eternity, that's the way the relationship among the God has been. And that's what He's calling us to do in the church, to display the glory of God, to submit one to another in Christ. That's what we see. It's not just, hey, this is the way you guys live. That's a reflection of God's own nature. Each person of the Trinity was already glorified. So why go through all this? Well, this is a new kind of glory, isn't it? This is a glory of the triune God to creatures. This is the joy set before Him that was hinted in Hebrews 2.2. The God-man is glorified. He's given a special name, we're told in Philippians uh, two. All of this redounds to the glory of God the Father. If you're in Christ, your salvation is an expression of the love gift of the Father to the Son. Your growth in the image of Jesus is an expression of the love gift of the Father to the Son. It matters not because we're awesomely awesome, but because He is. It's bigger than us. The church is the gift that is given. It's bigger than us. We ought to be incredibly grateful to be a part of that. All right. What's the response? What are some things that we do in time and space that involve a lot of planning? Can, just some things that you know about. I have a friend who's a coach. He has to do football duty. And they have to go in on the weekends and review scouting tapes of other teams. And they spend hours and hours... Of, uh, 
analyzing the defensive posture, the offensive plays, and all this kind of stuff. How do we respond to this? How are we gonna, hours and hours for a football game on Friday night. What are some other things we spend so much time on? Practice. Pro, what? Practice. Practice. You want to be good at your instrument? You've got to make your lips numb. Right? You've got you to be out of breath on a regular occasion figuring out how to work that horn, right? Hey, practice, practice, practice. What else? Big events. Big events like? Weddings. Weddings. First one comes to mind, isn't it? I know <clears throat> it took us six months to get to the possibility of the event. It took us nine months to plan the event, right? Six months to make the decision, yeah, this is the one we're going to do the event with. Nine months to say, what's the event going to look like and how are we going to pay for it? <laughs> so Tammy spent nine months planning the wedding. I spent nine months planning the honeymoon. So that's just the way that works. You plan what's important to you, right? You plan what's most important to you. How often do we dismiss as common something that has occupied the mind and heart of God for all eternity? It's important to Him. Right? This is a covenant that He's entered into from eternity past to give a love gift among the members of the Trinity and there are Sunday mornings I just want to roll over. There are mornings I don't want to read my Bible and grow in Christ. There are days where I just don't want to strive for kindness or self-control. How often do we dismiss it? John Piper says this, The Church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. And that includes the Republican Party, by the way. <laughs> the most important institution in the world. The Assembly of the Redeemed are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the Church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. All flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord and all his family abide forever. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, the church. How important is it? It's cosmically important. If it's true, that this is, if this is true, if this is the love gift, a Trinitarian love gift, a Trinity love gift, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about as a Trinitarian, we've got to use right nouns, I guess. If this is a love gift among the persons of the Trinity, shouldn't I want to be with the people of God? If it's true, shouldn't I want to build up and serve that love gift between the Father, Son, and Spirit? Shouldn't that affect the way that I view my sin? Shouldn't that affect the way, um, shouldn't that dictate the, the way the, that, that we don't treat the girls we date as playthings, but as gifts of God from eternity past to Himself, not to us? This has massive implications. But, but we just kind of click along like our wants are the center of the universe. 
This is a massive implication. Our wants are not the center of the universe. Jesus is. And so while we talk about big and lofty things, and we do a lot, and I love doing it, they have really practical implications. How do we live? What do we prize? What do we strive for? I want to make, I want to do my part in displaying the image of Christ in the love gift, right? I become part of a great prize, not because of who I am, but because of what He's doing with me, with us. You realize that we're saved individually, but we're saved into a body. It's not communism that we're talking about here. I'm talking about the corporate body of Christ. We're saved into a body, and we think in terms of the body. And that body is given great value because of what God is doing through us in Christ. What are some things, I want to hear from you guys, I've been monologuing it again. Uh, what are some things that, that it hit you about this? Number one, Kevin, you're, you're, you're off. What a spurious argument. Uh, two, how does that affect the way, you, if it's true, how does it affect life and, 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 and community together? What, what, do you what are your thoughts on that? Should make everything that we do uh, from God's perspective a lot more important. Just like what you said, I mean, people, especially when it comes to weddings, that engulfs their entire mindset up until that time. But, I mean, God the Father planned before time even existed for Christ to die on the cross and for us to be redeemed. And yeah. so, if we truly want to be conformed to His will, then we need to value what He values, and that's the glorification of his son. And that's the way Paul talked about it in Titus, didn't he? Do all things for the sake of the elect, for their sanctification, for their glorification. The sword is still going. I mean, actually, yeah. the, the wedding idea is a great analogy that's used in Scripture right. of the church being bride and Christ being the bridegroom. And the way Jewish weddings were done, the bridegroom went to get the bride when the father told the bridegroom. Yeah. The bridegroom didn't know when his actual wedding day was going to be right. until the father told him, go get your bride. He's actually building a house on top of his father's wedding. Yeah, yeah. He, he goes to prepare a place for his bride that where he is, she may be also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're right. That was part of the fun. We, we, we have made, I think, weddings in our culture much too clinical. <laughs> right? Well, reality TV shows don't help. No, well, that... <laughs> That's true on a great many levels. But, uh, well, just, you know, there's not a whole lot of, of uh, everything's planned down to the detail. You know what's coming unless you have just one of the, the off flower girl just to make everything interesting. I mean, that's why people love the flower girl because it's the really, I mean, I, you guys who got married, love you, that's great. But really, the only thing interesting in the wedding is the flower, flower girl and the ring bearer. I mean, because what are they going to do? Are they going to freak out? So we know it's coming with the other stuff. But this idea of the Father waiting, and when He gives His blessing, then things go forward. It's a big procession. And the idea that there will be a great marriage. Yeah, and who knows how long that's going to last until the money runs out. You know, but, but I mean, that whole idea is that we're still 
in the process of yeah. the story. Yeah, we're still in the drama. And that, and that feeds into what we're going to talk about the next time we're together, why we evangelize. I, I've joked about there's gold and then there are hills. I mean, if God calls them, they're coming. We just got to go get them, right? And that's, but part of that is this certainty of the fulfillment of the covenant of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They're not going to drop the ball. God is not going to drop the ball on this. And He uses us as a means to, again, every person who is saved, there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Why? This is the Father giving the Son another gift. Every time, another gift. And that's our effort here. A time and space, this is what God has called us to do, to be part of, what a great honor. And I'm in Starbucks going, I don't know, maybe we're going to fight or whatever. What a great honor to say, come to Jesus. Repent. Believe the gospel. Let heaven rejoice. The great gift, again, from the Father to the Son. What a great honor. Yeah. The, the same concept as that, it, it was occurring to me as you were talking that the term witness mm. is very Calvinistic because it's something that you're, while we add means and we speak the truth through the gospel, etc., we are witnessing what the Holy Spirit and Christ and God the Father are doing. Yeah. It's very Calvinistic. It's that we're not causing anything to happen. Right, right. We can't flip the switch. That's God's, whether he's going to say, yes, this one, that's the, you know, proceed to the Son as a gift or not. Um, anyway, yes. Well, all things are Calvinist when we come down to it. I mean, right, but specifically the term witness. No, you're right. Specifically the term witness is also a Calvinistic term. I agree. In, in, in its implication. Yes. It's not causative. Right. It's bearing witness to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually worse from a work standpoint to be proclaimed free, to be proclaimed debt-free by God. Because what's the obligation? Then he can ask anything of me. I owe him everything. I mean, otherwise, I mean, that's what, what the height of ingratitude, right? To, Thank you for that. I'm going on and doing my thing, right? That, that's the height of ingratitude. But to say... I did these five pillars, or I did this, you know, visited the, the temple in Utah, or whatever you do. Therefore, you owe me, God, pay up with forgiveness. It, it's, it's on your terms. But Christianity puts it that you're completely dependent on the mercy and grace of God. Because of this gracious, overly gracious act, now I have to be all in. Right? It's a, it's a lot more of a...
freeing thing because I don't have to work for it. But at the same time, it's a lot more of a, you're all in. There's no half, Scripture doesn't, light and dark, you can't, there's no gray area, right? He talks in terms of light and dark. Death and life. There's just, he's mostly, we don't do mostly dead in Christianity. It's, it's, it's stark contrast. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36. That's, that's, um, that's the conclusion of Paul's analysis of Calvinism, which wasn't even around yet. When I mean, he didn't call it Calvinism. It was Paulism, I guess. I don't know. Godism. Isaiahism. Genesisism. Mosesism. Godism, I guess, ultimately. <laughs> keep dialing it back. Anything else? I know it's I know it's late. We could probably talk about and we can talk about this more at lunch today over some table discussion will be had. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Wow, what a doctrine. What an idea that our salvation is secondary because you are primary. Lord, may, may you be first in our hearts. May you be the goal that we seek. May your people glorify Christ as he glorifies you. And all of that redounds to the glory of God the Father. We just pray that your spirit work in us to keep this ever before us, the great value that you've placed, not because we're awesome, but that you've placed on us as a love gift to the Son and vice versa. We pray that we would be working because you're working in us that we would be more gracious with each other that we would be more bold in our witness to the goodness of christ we pray that all of this would um, again display the wonders of your mercy to us in christ it's in his name we pray amen